The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, Fathom Church. It's such a blessing to be with you this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Joel Caffey, and as uh, Kyle said, I'm one of the pastoral interns here. I go to Denver Seminary. Um, and I also uh, have the joy of leading the college ministry here at Fathom. Woo-hoo! Yeah. Hope you all had a great Christmas and a happy New Year's. And I hope that this first year of 2024 is just all that you hoped and dreamed it would be. So with this being the first bit of the year, I can imagine a fair, a fair bit of your recent thoughts, your conversations have been, what's going to happen this year? What are you going to be doing this year? And maybe even some resolutions for it, perhaps. And today, our, our time is going to engage this a little bit, um, but I'm going to discuss or, or bring to you a slightly different aspect of approaching this upcoming year. So to begin this idea, I want to share a little bit about me, a little bit about my story growing up. I remember one year, as I was starting the year, I had to decide if I was going to start playing baseball or if I was going to stay in the Cub Scouts. So I decided that I was tired of being honest and tired of tying knots and stuff like that, and I decided to go for the team. And I ended up loving it, actually. Had a great, great time. Played for a couple years, and my team actually won one of the championship leagues. Uh, it, was, it was pretty awesome. It was pretty great. And so actually the next season, when there was the, uh, the tryouts and the practices, I definitely just happened to be wearing my championship t-shirt to those. You know, let the coaches know what kind of talent they were getting that season. The Lord has since helped me with my humility, and I thank you for your unspoken concern. <laughs> but I remember one of my seasons after that, I remember we made it to the championship again, and I remember that last game pretty, pretty distinctly. I remember it was the last inning of the game, We had two batters out, and we were down. The other team was still winning. And I remember I got up to the plate. And I'm going to get a little theatrical on y'all, so so, so bear with me. I just want to bring you to this moment with me. So I remember getting up to the plates. And please don't judge my baseball stance. It's been a long time. But I remember getting up there, and I remember the first pitch coming. I saw it. I swung. Wasn't bad. Wasn't bad. But strike one. Missed it. So I take a step back. Take a breath. I got this. Stick up, go to the plate again. And I get ready for the second pitch. It's coming. It looks low. I don't swing. Ah, But I should have. Strike two. Now I'm feeling the pressure. (laughs) Feeling the pressure a little bit. I hear my team cheering me on from the side. The the two guys who are on deck to bat after me, they're cheering me on. (sighs) Feeling the pressure, but I got this. Like, we won the championship last time, so I got this. So I get ready. Get ready for the third pitch. All right. See it coming. I time it. I swing. And to strike three. I'm out. And we're done. You know those moments you have as a kid where it just kind of like burned into your memory a little bit? That was one for me. Just that sinking feeling like I blew it. And as the, as the other team went kind of cheering off into their field, I had to walk slowly back to the dugout. So why am I sharing this, this kind of sad, kind of sad story with you guys? As we enter this new year, as we enter it, I can imagine you have plans, maybe some resolutions, solid hope and confidence in what this next year can bring. And let me be clear, like, I think those are good. I think those are great. Have, have those. And also... And also, there's a basic reality that we live in as Christians and as people, as we walk this life, that we're going to make mistakes. 
we're gonna have failures, moments where we just blow it. And obviously to varying degrees and to varying impact, I mean, striking out wasn't the end of the world, it was for me. But to widen this kind of to real life, we all have moments of failure like this, right? When it comes to what we strive for or what we should do, especially as Christians. We can wrestle with our own spiritual failures, right? We wrestle with those, we have those struggles, both current and past. And I can imagine as I say that, maybe something has already come to mind. Not so fondly you can look back on, something like that. Each of us has a moment of failure, something like that we can look back on and just kind of feel that weight again. And in our text today, we're gonna be looking and experiencing a heavy moment, a heavy moment in the in the scriptures that all the gospels bring to us, a moment of failure. And this story, again, that's it, all gospels, all four of them record this story and bring it to us. So, so just get prepped for a real heart warmer, real heart warmer for this one. But I love you guys too much to not share something like this. So with that, if you would please turn with me to the text, we're gonna be in the book of Luke today. We'll be in the book of Luke, starting in chapter 22. Chapter 22 starting in verse 54. If you have one of those black Bibles under your chair, this is on page 883, 883. Again, I know we're kind of going from Advent to last week with the Great Commission. Now we're taking a step, a little step back from that. Again, the book of Luke, chapter 22, starting in verse 54. Now, as you flip there, as I stated earlier, I'd, I'd like to share a slightly different aspect of uh, approaching this new year and your views towards it. And I'd like to propose a notion about failure. You know, great, great happy new year stuff. But the notion of failure, and this is what I'm gonna propose, that failure can be a gift. Failure can be a gift. Now I guess what you, you might already be thinking when you, when you hear that kind of proposition Something maybe along the lines of that failure makes you tough, right? Failure helps you get back up on the horse and back into the fight again. And yeah, I think, I think that's true to a degree. But I'm going to say that that's not, that's not it. Failure and how we respond to it, especially going into a new year, new opportunities, I think it can go much deeper than just learning from our mistakes, I think it can go deeper than just learning from our mistakes, especially as a believer. Because I don't, I don't mean to burst any bubbles, but this, this next year won't be the magical year that you have no struggles, <laughs> that you have no struggles with sin or temptation or anything like that. Sorry, <laughs> happy new years. This is gonna be another year. You're gonna deal with these things. But maybe this year could be a little bit different in a certain way, which thus begs the question, how then can failure be a gift? Why would failure be a gift? Just so happy that you guys asked that. I wrote a sermon about it. So if you would kindly read along with me in our text today. Again, we're starting in Luke 22 um, and verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following from a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, and sat down together, Peter sat among them. We'll stop right there. So let's start with some, some brief context because we are just jumping into this here. As you've probably read the subtitle of this section, 
This is centered on the disciple Peter and a really big moment for him. Now, this account directly follows uh, Jesus' betrayal by Judas in the garden. It says that he's led away and he's, he starts the beginning of his judgment, of his condemnation before the Jews and then before Rome. And when it, when it says, actually, we're jumping in, the context that they, when it says they led him, that these would have been the chief priests. These would have been the officers of the temple and uh, the elders, so the leaders in Israel. Now, it says that they brought him into the high priest's home or the dwelling place. And according to the scriptures, Christ's trial before the Jews was done in three separate stages. One before Annas, who was uh, the former high priest who still had reverence from the Jews. And the second was from Caiaphas, the legal high priest, or at least seen that way by Rome. So his, it was a process. And then the last one, he would have been taken before the entire Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the other Jewish leaders. So it was during, so for context, this is during the first two judgments that Peter's story falls, that you've probably heard of. There are some discrepancies um, about the timing of this with Matthew and Mark having slightly different timelines, but ultimately I believe this is inconsequential because all four gospels record this incident. And if you kind of didn't know that about the gospels, like some record certain accounts and some leave them out. So when something is present in all four, that's prominence. That shows that there's something important and a value that we can even remember today. So as we read this narrative, here I want to start my first core moment, is what I'm going to call it, since we're in a narrative, which is that Peter denies. Peter denies, as this section is often titled. Now the first part of Peter's denial that we don't usually see at first is that Peter follows Jesus from a distance. The Greek implies that he's, he's far off. He's, he's close enough to see what's going on, but not close enough to get involved. So in some way, knowing Peter, he is fulfilling his boast that he would follow Christ to the end. If you know Peter, he said things like that. But basically, he's sneaking around. He's sneaking around this, which is just such a complete contrast to the I'm, I'm with you to the end kind of confidence, kind of loud Peter that we know up to this point. So now before we, we throw Peter completely underneath the bus, as we love to do, which is, which is rightfully so at times, the others scattered. It says that the others scattered and abandoned him. And we actually see in a different account in uh, John 18, same story, same account, that John was actually with him for this. It doesn't say it here, but John was with him for this denial. And was actually, he was known in the court of the high priest, and that's what Peter's ticket, how, that's how actually he got in there. But he is putting himself in a slightly dangerous situation here. So he hasn't completely abandoned his confidence just yet. Then the true testing. The true testing comes for Peter, and he's placed in a very tense situation where he very well could fulfill, could fulfill his vow to the Lord that he would go with him to prison and even unto death. This begins the second way where he denies and separates himself from Jesus. First, physically distancing himself, and now with his words. Uh, if you continue with me in verse 56, we're actually going to go all the way down to 60. Verses 56 through 60. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. 
And immediately when he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. We'll stop there. Oh, Peter. He's denied his Lord three times now and broken his word that he gave to Jesus, his moment of failure. Now let's, let's understand this count a little bit further and kind of look into each of these moments. For Peter's first denial of Christ was not to a, a Jewish official or someone or like one of the military offers mentioned, but rather a servant girl, a servant girl or maid who had relatively low authority or testimony against him. And she says, you also were with him. You were with him, Jesus. And yet he shies away. He says, woman, I do not know him. By doing this, Peter, to understanding our, native, our narrative, uh, Peter's begun disassociating himself with the Lord. He disassociates his knowledge of him in the situation. This is him backing away. He's separating himself, almost appearing naive or innocent to what's going on. Then a little bit later, Peter's challenged again. Again, another opportunity to be called out, to stand up for Christ, to be a follower. And see, as we see in the Gospels, Peter probably would have, no, he would have said that he was the best. He said he was the best, most faithful follower of Christ. Again, to go, to die, to be imprisoned. But another man calls him out. He challenges him and says, you also are one of them. Actually, the include of the word also does imply that, that John was there with him, that he was seeing this. And Peter, unable to stand on his confidence again, denies it and says, I am not. In this, he's separating his very identity in our narrative. He's separating his identity from Jesus. I mean, even just feel the weight. <laughs> feel the weight of that comparison for a sec. He, he goes from the, the self-declared most faithful disciple. In modern comparison, he's, he's like the, the crazy passionate uh, spiritual one who's got like Romans 116 tattooed on his arm. If, if it had been written yet, he would, have, he, would, he would have had it for sure. But going from that to claiming that he doesn't even know the guy, doesn't even know him, and he himself has nothing to do with him. I mean, could you even just imagine being the, being the other disciple and hearing the confident one in your group just crumble and dissolve before these questions? How do you think seeing this may have even impacted him, too? It's kind of another example of Peter's failure impacting not only himself, but those around us. We all feeling good? <laughs> we all feeling encouraged? I know this is less than glorious. I know. I know that. But I appreciate you sticking with me in this. As we still strive, as we strive to learn, it's here. There's something for us in this. Yet another hour passes, and Peter has not stepped up and is challenged again, this time with a little more heat, says in uh, verse 59, after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. This is getting closer and closer to morning. This is kind of the progression of the night. This would have been about 3 a.m. or so. Now, someone is more confidently challenging Peter, even with evidence at this time. He's a little more in danger at this point. And in John's account, the person who challenged Peter was actually related to the servant who got his ear chopped off in the garden, if you remember that account, by, by Peter. Because actually, the Gospels, the other three don't say who it was. They kind of leave that disciple anonymous, except for John. John just outs Peter. He's like, yep, that was him. Focus on him. This, Peter, uh, this person catches Peter's accents and what region he's from. So in a third time of the span of this evening, Peter has every chance to stand up for his faith, to do what we would call ourselves to do, and he doesn't. He denies again. 
fervently saying, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And again, in this narrative, this is a complete separation from Peter, from his Lord Jesus. He separates his knowledge, his identity, and his very being from the Lord. I mean, just how, how heartbreaking is that? This is complete desertion. Now, as we look at Peter in his failings in this account, it might be easy. We might have the tendency to look at this and go, well, I've never messed up that bad. I've never, I mean, I've never like, directly said that I'm not a follower of Jesus. Maybe not. But what do we maybe have done in our hearts in the subtle deeds and the subtle things that deny our discipleship? What about those things? I mean, even thinking back to the moments that may have come up when I mentioned about failures or spiritual moments of lacking. If Jesus commands that God desires our heart and our inward being matters just as much as our outward being, are we really that much better than Peter here? Can, can we really separate ourselves? Or more directly, have you ever had a time for your own reflection, have you ever had a time where you didn't stand up for Christ in some form, in some way, where you feel even during or afterwards that you, ah, I should have. I know I have. I'm there. I want different moments of ministry, evangelism for me. Um, share, I remember one time I had the blessing to go to Romania for a month with the college ministry I was a part of. And we went to the university there and we were ministering to uh, the students. Just had some awesome evangelizing opportunities. I got to talk to a Satanist several times. That was fun. Just engaging with people. It was a really, really good time. But then on the flight back, on the flight home, I was sitting next to a gal. And we started talking, kind of went into that range. And suddenly she started challenging me in what I believed. And I just froze. <laughs> I froze up. I, I, started, I started backpedaling. My confidence was just kind of shot. And it surprised me. It's like, what, what just happens? Again, we, we all experience this. We all experience moments like this, moments of failing. You are not alone. You are not alone in this if you do feel that way. Again, these moments sometimes surprise us. Places we thought we were strong, and just suddenly we, get, we just get humbled. Humbled in that moment. We falter. But as I said, failure can be a gift. So let's continue to see how. Let's see how in the text, continue with me at the turn of verse 60. Eyes on the text, verse 60, the turn of that. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. I'll stop there. And here I kind of want to make my, my second core moments of this continuing narrative. I know the, lar- the first one was larger, which is that Jesus looks. Jesus looks. Here's what we see. We widen. We're widening out from the smaller situation that's happened around the campfire and people challenging Peter to, uh, to, the, larger, to the larger situation that's going on. He's jolted out of this with the sound of the rooster crowing. Now, the rooster crow was a Roman division of time. It indicated the end of the third watch, again, about three in the morning or so. But for Peter, this was the sound of failure. It says that Peter was reminded of what Jesus had told him before that evening. And I'll actually, I'm going to read that section over us, and it should actually just be on the other page of the same chapter, same chapter, but in verses 33 and 34, if you want to read it along with me. Again, same chapter, 33 and 34. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you 
both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Now, the other gospel accounts include that Peter said he would never, he just refutes Jesus, not a good idea. He refutes Jesus and said, I'm never gonna do that, like ever, not gonna do it. But the sound of the rooster crow brought these painful words back to his mind. And as we see, it wasn't the only thing that he experienced in his denial, or right after his denial. The verse says that the Lord turned and looked. He looks at Peter. Now this could have been when Jesus was being led from one judgment to the other. There's kind of speculation about that, or if he could see him from where he was. But he looked at Peter. This wasn't a glance. This wasn't just kind of brief eye contact. He looked into Peter in this moment. The Greek root word here for this is emblepo. It implies more than just, more than just seeing it. It's a concentrated uh, consideration with a look of love, interest, or concern. He looked at Peter. I mean, can you just imagine this moment? I know these are words on a page. I know these are words on a page. Just imagine this. I'm gonna actually ask you, put yourself in a situation like this. I want you to imagine that your, your spouse your person, or someone you deeply, deeply care about is arrested. Think that they were arrested. The one you love, the one you cherish, would, you'd say you died for them, is they're convicted of something they didn't do. You know, classic cop show kind of thing. But picture yourself there, and then you are being interrogated by the police. They bring you in. They bring you in for the interrogation to see your relation or your involvement with them. And again, for some reason, you're just freezing up. You're freezing up like a deer in a headlight kind of thing, and you just start denying. You don't know. Denying them left and right that, you, that you, you're involved with them, that you just haven't done anything with them at all, and your heart's just kind of trembling inside you as you do it. And then, when it seems like you're in the clear, that person walks around the corner and heard every word that you said, and they lock eyes with you for a sec. Oh, just, just, Feel the emotional burden and the weight of that moment just for a sec. I think that kind of feeling could capture a fraction of what Peter must have felt in that moment. Peter has spent the whole evening denying that he even knew his Lord Jesus, and then Jesus locks eyes with him. Now, only Peter himself knows exactly what this interaction looked like, what it truly looked like. But I think we can thoughtfully ask the question, how did Jesus look at Peter? Was it a scolding look? Did he, did, he, did he glare at his prideful follower? Did he glare at him? Was it a disappointed look? Did Jesus look at Peter in kind of like a somber silence saying, do you really not know me, Peter? Do you not know me? What about the last years we had together? Was it a disappointed look? Faithfully pondering this, and based on his relationship with Peter, both before and after the resurrection, I believe it was neither of these. I believe it was neither of these. The heart of Jesus, I think, is revealed again right before he predicts Peter's denial. So actually, if you wouldn't mind looking again, same chapter, verses 31 and 32, right before what we just read. What do we find? He says, Simon, Simon, behold... Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. 
that I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus interceded for Peter in this moment. Prior to his moment of Peter denying him, that his faith would not fail. Now, this is to be understood in the larger sense of utterly failing from this moment. As Jesus, as we see, he shortly afterwards says that it's going to happen. He prophesies that Peter would fail and deny him, but that his faith would continue after his failure. Jesus loved Peter, just as, deep, just as Jesus deeply loves and looks on you. This was, not a, this was not a look of scorn. This was not a look of, of disappointment, but of compassion. Compassion and meaning. Jesus knew Peter was going to fail and deny him, and yet he deeply loved him anyways. The Lord looked on Peter with the, love, with the look of a loving, suffering Savior, and Peter breaks. And Peter breaks. This is our last, our last core mo- brief core moment in this painful narrative that, that Peter breaks. Verse 62, finishing that, that section. And he went out and wept bitterly. He fled and he wept. He, he knew what he had done and felt the weight. He felt the weight of it. Now, weeping culturally at the time was already a loud, expressive form of grief. So the addition of this word bitterly, which in the Greek it also implies violently or to great extreme, Peter's spirit had probably dropped to a deeper low than he had ever known before. He knew in his heart, mind, and soul that he failed, that he failed. Have you been there? Have you been there, Christian, if you were honest with yourself? Have you ever had a moment in your life, a moment like this, where you were just so angry and disappointed with yourself and it just hits your soul in a way? You are not alone. You are not alone, Christian. Far from it. Even the great apostle Peter had a devastating moment in his faith. Or even better yet, I want to ask you, when you have your failures, when you have those moments, how do you believe Jesus looks at you? If you were honest, if you were to lock eyes with Jesus after you sin, what would you see? Do you think you'd see disappointment? be anger, disgust even, depending on what you did. As we see in Peter and the word, this is not so. This is not so. And this is where our passage ends. <laughs> happy, happy New Year. As I said, it's, it's heartwarming for this one. But I feel like these kinds of narratives, or even just narratives in the Bible in general, we often, when, we, when we're striving to learn from it, when we read a narrative, when we're trying to learn from it, we often simplify it, I think, a little too much. I think we say, like, all right, if the person acts godly, that's a good example. Do those kind of things, right? If, it's, if the person acts sinfully, that's a bad example. Don't, just don't do those kind of things. Y- yes, <laughs> yes, I think that's true. However... I think this kind of oversimplification can actually drain the opportunity of growth when we hit things like this, or better yet, when we're already guilty of them, right? And Christ did not leave Peter here guilty, and neither will we simply sit there. I want to, I want to briefly extend Peter's story beyond our text and what the, what the Lord did for Peter 
and what he does for all of us and is that Jesus restores. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Jesus restores. This is where the account ends, but Peter's story was not over. As we well know, and moving from our narrative to the next, Peter's denial was followed by Christ's crucifixion and then by his prophesied resurrection. Spoilers. But following his resurrection, he had several moments with his disciples after that, if you knew that, different and appeared to them a couple different times. One in particular is found in John 21, is where Jesus has a very, very meaningful conversation with Peter, which is really worth a whole sermon of its own. I'm not going to dive too deep on that. In this appearance, in this story, Jesus questions uh, Peter. He asks him three times, do you love me? If you've heard this count before. He asks him three times if he loves him before the other disciples too. Most commentaries agree this is meant to mirror the three times that Peter denies him. Again, the number three being a symbol of completeness, something being wholly declared or stated. And to each time, Peter responds that he does. He responds that he does. Uh, there is commentary discussion of the different words that are used in his responses. But the, over, the overall agreement of this interaction and his line of questioning is that Jesus was reminding him of his humbling experience, of his failure. And then by his redemptive grace, he was still embracing Peter. He was still embracing Peter and calling him to fulfill the purpose of his earlier prayer. If you remember the verse, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Each time, each time Peter answers that he does, Jesus calls Peter to a leading role in the church. He, believe, he calls them to a shepherding role among the believers, which I believe just gives a beautiful picture of God drawing imperfect people into his purposes drawing imperfect people into his purposes. As we see in the rest of, G of Peter's story, that he was changed. He became a, a pillar of the early church in the different times that they had. In Acts 2, he preaches confidently before thousands of people and has a humongous impact. And what we see, we see in his writings, things like this, like in 1 Peter 5, 8, he writes, he warns the believers to be sober-minded, to be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If anyone truly experienced this and knew this of the enemy, it was Peter. Peter was restored in his failing, restored by Jesus, as Jesus restores us in ours. Now to softly return to our original question in the narrative of Peter's denial, the idea that failure can be a gift. How can failure be a gift? In our expansion from the story, we can kind of see how Peter was gifted with redemption from his failure and used and restored. And I believe we can, still, we can go further than that. I think we can look at his story and be encouraged and instructed in our own divine relationship with the Father. A divine relationship. You know, that's what Christianity is, right? It's a divine relationship, a relationship with the Father on the foundation of Jesus's sacrifice and then by the power of the Holy Spirit. We engage the Trinity in that way. How amazing is that? And in this relationship, it includes us making mistakes, having failures, and then becoming more like him. And we can look at Peter for this. So in light of Jesus' restoring, I'll make two final core 
uh, statements to this question. I believe that failure can be a gift because failure can magnify our ever need for God. And failure can magnify our ever need for God. For Peter, this failure magnified and hollowed his pride. His pride and confidence in his own strength as we see further back in the ministry. His need for a savior and his weakness where he thought he was strong. So to Peter's growth, self-righteousness and a prideful independence has no place in the heart of a true follower of Christ. Failure humbles us in this way. This truly broke him and humbled him. Far from perfect, even after, as are we. And it actually can be very proper to feel a level of grief looking at his story. It can, it's proper to feel a level of grief and breaking over your sin as long as it leads you back to your need for God. Leads you back to your need for the Lord and your identity in him. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's kind of, it's in God's transforming process that our flaws are exposed. Our weaknesses are exposed. The falling short, the glory of God, as Romans 3 brings us. You have ever need for him, ever need. You desperately need him, his strength, his wisdom, his patience, and equally, his mercy and his compassion and his grace. In this, you actually avoid the dangers of an apathetic view, casually becoming just kind of numb to your sins, not really caring about it anymore. Rather than letting your failure magnify your continuous need for him and his redemption that that forgives your sin, you address it. You address it and you acknowledge your need for him. Following that, my last point, second point to that, is that failure can be a gift because failure can magnify his everlasting love for us. His everlasting love for us. In Peter's worst acts of sinful denials, Jesus still looks on him, looked at him with love as he does us. You thought about it that way, that God looks at you, looks on you with the love of a father, not the disappointed scowl of an employer. It's a relationship. God knows us. He understands us. He knows what we're made of, and he loves us still. As I had read at the very beginning, I'll read it again, Romans 8, 38 and 39. I'll put this on the screen for us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, that includes you, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we repent in our fallenness, and we see that God still has a deep agape love for us, this ought to humble us and bring us in humble worship and praise at his feet. God's grace abounds to us in our failures. Now in this, I add an important nuance to the point where I don't wish to glorify suffering, or I'm sorry, glorify failings to the point that's not healthy or actually saying that sin actually is a good thing. Please, please don't hear me say that today. 
Not saying it like it's a gift so you can get, get some more of it. We see in the scripture, that speaks to that. Romans 6, like just shuts this down. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? But in response, as believers, when this happens, we turn. We turn from our sin and we remind ourselves of God's love for us even as we wrestle with some of our past or current failures. When you embrace this, when you embrace God's everlasting love, you avoid the view of crushing condemnation. You avoid that overwhelming guilt that just you sink into that mud every time something like that happens. You avoid this. Exactly. Fill the judgment seat of your mind with God. Fill the judgment seat in your mind with God and what he says. Because your flesh and the enemy will quickly try to fill that spot with vicious intents. That's their intent. And that can happen often, right? Happen with the big things, happen with the little things too. I remember back to that baseball game. I remember back to that baseball game where I struck out. It's that sinking feeling. I let myself down, I let my team down, and just walking back to the dugout. What I didn't mention before was that my dad was waiting for me. My dad was waiting for me behind the fence at that game. And I remember him just, just you know, fingers, like, just like holding through the chain link fence and saying like, hey, I love you. <laughs> I love you. You, have, you haven't lost any love from me because that happened. And I needed that. <laughs> I needed that as a kid. And to what degree do we need that with our heavenly father? just reminding of how much he loves us, how much he wants to comfort us, to comfort us, to reveal himself in our need for him and with his love. I think it's a beautiful picture. So I encourage you, even even as you go into this next year, spying for godliness, like, do so. And also, the next time, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. The next time you fail or sin, and fall short the glory of God. I want to encourage you, in your repentance, declare your constant need for God. Address it. Affirm that, Lord, I still need you every hour. Amidst this process of changing you, and then genuinely praise him that he looks on you graciously with love and compassion, and then faithfully move on. That's my encouragement. Or in a certain way, I want to encourage you, fail well this year. (laughs) That's a little weird, right? Fail well this year. Not obviously seeking out failure, but when it happens, respond. Respond well. Just like Peter in his failure, God is not done with you. Remind yourself. Declare your need. Acknowledge the depth of his love. And then move forward in restoration. Maybe that's how this year can be different for you. Having closeness with the Lord. Failure can be a gift. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. As, as heartbreaking as it is, we thank you for giving us the story of Peter denying you, Lord. And we thank you for what you've done after, what you do for us, how you look at us, Lord. We just praise you. We just praise you. We're, We don't deserve this, Lord. I pray, 
I pray for all my brothers and sisters in this room and myself, that as we go into this year, that we would have our confidence in you and that even when we fail, Lord, you're there. You're gonna carry us through and by your grace, we're gonna move even faster. We're gonna grow. We're not gonna be stuck. But we would seek you in this way, even in the times when we mess up, even when the times when we fail, Lord. We praise you for your grace and we thank you for your undeserved love. We pray this all in the mighty saving name of Jesus. Amen.